Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll, kiss. I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They like to keep the politics in this podcast, but out of the energy industry. If you want to learn more about what the Empowerment Alliance is fighting for or help support the work they're doing, please visit toggn.org. That is Tango, Echo Alpha, Oscar, Golf, Golf, November.org. And there'll be a link in the show notes. I can tell you these guys are incredibly passionate about promoting America's energy independence, and I hope that you'll check them out, sign up for their newsletter, see what all they've got going on, show them some love because they've helped make this podcast possible, and we certainly appreciate that. So welcome to the program. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. So grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, Jordan, you've you've only done a half dozen episodes at this point, and in that time, you've managed to slam the Democrats and the Republicans for spending too much money. You've tackled a potential economic crisis in Yemen. You've gone after the Houthi rebels, the president of Turkey. You've gone after Vladimir Putin. I mean, you probably ought to slow it down. This is you're coming in too hot. Too hot, you gotta slow it down, pump the brakes a little bit. And you know what? You're right, guys. I have. I've come in too hot. I've said too many things, I've made too many enemies, I need to cool my jets, right? Um I've got, you know, my twelve dedicated listeners, and I appreciate you guys, and I don't wanna alienate anybody else. We don't wanna we don't wanna piss anyone off, so we need to be responsible. So tonight we're gonna take it easy. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about a few headlines here, a couple of things I want to say. One, we got a, a comment, a very nice comment, from a um, C. McKay, who, uh, who left a review for us on uh, the, the Apple Podcast app. And um, very nice. It was very, very thoughtful, very nice. I appreciate you doing that. If you like the program and you want to leave a review, uh, please feel free and do so. It's uh, greatly appreciated. If you don't like the program, then just switch it off and don't leave a review. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Don't trouble yourself. But if you are enjoying it, please do. That's that's quite helpful uh, to make sure we're on the right track. Also, if you have ideas or suggestions on something you want me to tackle or talk about in the geopolitical space, please, by all means, email me. It's jordan.driscoll at oggn.com. And um, I'm, I'm happy to look at those and, and try and answer those questions or tackle them and just give you my perspective on whatever thing it is if you want that. <clears throat> so now that we've got the, the housekeeping out of the way, and of course, uh, you know, check out our sponsor, and there's going to be a link in the show notes for that. Um, 
now that we've gotten the housekeeping out of the way, let's talk about something nice. Let's talk about something light tonight. You know, let's let's we gotta get away from all this heavy stuff. So what I was thinking is that obviously a nice light fluff piece. You know, where I can just kind of kick back my feet, not really have to worry about thinking about a show. Um, so I thought a good fluff piece was going to be obviously the uh, Communist Party of China and the People's Republic of China. I thought that would be where we'd go tonight. So let's tackle that. That's a pretty light one, right? So China, it's a big country. Approximately um, one out of five people on planet Earth live there. There's about 1.4 billion people. And to my knowledge, I don't think a single one of them is subscribed to this show. I think of all my 12 listeners, none of them are in China. And um, after this episode, it's kind of my suspicion that I'm probably not going to get a big um, demographic there. In fact, I, I reckon this podcast will likely be blacklisted there, but that's okay. I've already pissed off the president of Turkey, so I, I may as well go after Xi Jinping at this point, right? And I will. So let's talk about Xi Jinping and China. So Xi Jinping is, of course, a longtime Communist Party member, and he is currently the president of China and the secretary general of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, the political structure of China is incredibly complicated. I'm a comparative politics nerd, and I love a good flowchart, and I've looked at about 18 different ones trying to ex describe exactly how the hell the Chinese government is organized, and I'll be honest, I can't make sense of it. I mean, like most communist regimes, the intermingling of both the party and the apparatuses of government is so in-depth that it's impossible to tear them apart. And I have no clue how it all works in really granular detail. You want to talk about how UK parliament works, how Canadian parliament works, how the government of the Soviet Union worked. I got you all day long. You want me to try and walk you through the organs of government of China? I'm not your guy. I can't help you with that. But what I can tell you is that by 2012-2013, Xi Jinping was the premier leader, the paramount leader of China. And basically, in the simplest possible terms I can break it down that my little lizard brain can understand it, is that to be the paramount leader in China, you effectively have to be at the top of the food chain of multiple, for lack of a better word, branches of government and the head of the Communist Party. And he's the guy that managed to get himself into the most important chairs, so he's the leader. Um, interestingly enough, there were at one point term limits on how long one could be uh, in office has the ultimate authority in the People's Republic. And um, in 2018, Xi Jinping actually oversaw a series of constitutional changes. That's right, constitutional changes, big boy changes, that changed the Constitution of China to abolish term limits for the offices he held, which means that he has effectively got the capability of being just sort of emperor for life. And that's pretty intense when you get right down to it. Um, the vote was kind of shocking. So uh, the vote was in the People's Congress, 2,958 people voted to allow uh, Xi Jinping to remain in office with no term limits. And exactly two, dose, two people voted against it. And I just want to take a second in memoriam here and think about those two poor bastards that voted against that. Can you imagine how bad 
their day was after that. I mean, if you were one of two people that literally just voted against the changes of your new emperor from life, <laughs> can you imagine the oh fuck moment they had when they saw those numbers go up on the board of uh, who voted for what and they were one of only two? I don't know what happened to those guys. I couldn't find out specifically who they were, but not to ruin your morning cup of coffee, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say they may not be alive right now. Just saying. So anyway, among the other things that she has done now that they've uh, taken control of China and um, they've got this lifetime mandate to rule, they've also instilled their political philosophy known as Xi Jinping thought, and they have put that in the country and the party's constitution as a part of the constitution. And if that doesn't sound like that big of a deal to you, let me put it in Americanized terms to help you understand. That'd be the equivalent of President Joe Biden uh, deciding that his political opinions are now part of the Constitution, and he's declaring himself a founding father. Um, that just wouldn't really fly. We wouldn't really be okay with that, I don't think. But that's kind of what he's doing. The only other person whose political thought has actually been embedded in the Constitution of the party and the state of China is uh, Mao Zedong, the infamous Chinese dictator who ruled over China many, many decades ago. So he's kind of put himself in that same bucket. Now, Mao is in many ways considered to be something of a, a lunatic and a Stalin-esque character, even by some Chinese standards these days. But Xi Jinping does not have that reputation. He does have a reputation of coming down hard on things, but he also has a fairly broad amount of support. And part of the reason that he's got a lot of support is he took over the helm of a growing China. And for the first decade of his reign, it continued to grow pretty prodigiously. China's growth has been over 10% economically for literally the past couple of decades. And that is not only the single fastest and biggest economic growth for, for China ever, it's also the biggest and fastest economic growth of any major nation in the history of the human race. So that's a lot of growth. Now, there are all the horror stories, and we will get to those here in just a few minutes. But rest assured, he's got a lot of popularity. The economy was booming for most of the time he was in charge, and that really didn't start changing until here recently. He also had two really big signature uh, uh, projects that he wanted to kick off during his rule, and they were both really, really popular things. And the first one is the one that I think is strategically the biggest concern to us. And trust me, I will find a way to, you know, tie this into energy here in a few minutes. Just work with me. But the first one is the $1 trillion infrastructure project called the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, now, the goal, as stated by Xi Jinping, is to reshape global trade with China at the center. The goal is to create a series of roads that lead from China to all parts of Asia, Europe, and Africa, and a series of ports where all trade flows in and out of China, with China at the center of a global trade empire where everything flows in and out from them. That's kind of a very shocking um, 
possibility. The goal is for this project to be done by 2050. They started it nearly 10 years ago. And to give you an idea of how popular this is across the globe, 151 countries have signed up to be a part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. They're receiving loans and things like that for infrastructure to be part of building these great Chinese highways and these ports for China. And um, there's a lot of talk about whether or not this is sort of a debt trap where they're going to take out this debt from China and then just sort of be in some sort of vassal-like relationship with them when that's entirely possible. Um, At the end of the day, this is over a trillion dollars worth of trade and infrastructure that is going to be worked on for the next several decades. The completion date for this big project is 2050, and if it works, it will completely change how more than half the globe conducts their trade. It'll stop individual nation states from sort of being the main trading hubs and move everything to where China is at the center. And that should be really concerning to a lot of people. Um, Not to discourage the fact that 151 countries have signed on. That's a lot of countries. Only like 208 of them out there. Like that's a lot of people are all of a sudden very excited about this possibility. The other big thing that Xi Jinping did that was um, notable and got him a lot of praise from his uh, constituents was a major, major crackdown on corruption. Hundreds and hundreds of politicians were arrested at all levels of government and sentenced to jail time for corruption, which was a huge problem in China in the late uh, 90s and the early 2000s. So you may be asking yourself the question, you know, well, gosh, everyone says they're against corruption. What do you do? Well, he went after all these these corrupt politicians, and we're not just talking about low level. He went all the way to the top and the bottom, whether it be low-level prefects and towns that were skimming money out of parking fees, all the way up to multiple members of the Politburo Standing Committee were arrested and brought up on treason charges publicly. The Politburo is one of the biggest, highest-up organs of state. The closest thing I can compare it to would be something like the cabinet in the United States of America or the Privy Council if you're in England. It's it's a very important, very high-up Uh, near the top of the food chain, and the idea that members of that would be publicly stripped of their power and tried for corruption and thrown in jail was kind of shocking in a government which, up until this point, high-ranking party officials were notoriously immune to any kind of corruption charges. That's one of the things that actually hosed communism in most countries where it's taken root. If you look at the Soviet Union, if you look at Venezuela, if you look at Cuba— These countries have real problems with corruption, and it's one of the reasons why they eventually falter and collapse. And Xi Jinping may be a lot of things. He may be a dictator. He may be an authoritarian madman. He may be A-OK with a little genocide here and there and a uh, massive control freak. But the one thing the guy's not is evidently a dummy. He's spoken at length before about how he observed the fall of the Soviet Union and how if communism in China were going to thrive, there were going to have to be some very serious changes to the process. And one of those changes was taking care of lots of corruption and getting the public really riled up and on board with this. And and it worked. He's succeeded in getting a lot of people into thinking that he is a really solid, good guy who's for law and order. And hey, we all love law and order. That's why it's been on air for, what, 50 years now? Anyway, the point is, 
that these two initiatives are big, hairy deals. The corruption internally is obviously a very big thing because that creates a degree of stability and accountability in the government that it was otherwise lacking. The second thing is obviously the trade aspect. If China becomes the global power in trade, that has very serious ramifications across planet Earth, including for the oil and gas industry, and we'll get to that here in a minute. So, that being said, for all of Xi Jinping's exciting anti-corruption work, there is a darker side to it that gets a bit more tricky. So, first off, the man has a significant cult of personality, and he's got a very significant authoritarian streak in him. For instance, we've all heard stories about the Chinese internet censors that prevent you from accessing or looking up certain things that the government thinks are distasteful. Among the things that you're not allowed to look up are cult of personality, or quote-unquote the definition of the word emperor, (laughs) or, and this one's great, Winnie the Pooh. Now, I don't have time to get into that whole thing, but for those of you that want the very big nutshell version, Xi Jinping shares a somewhat uncanny resemblance to Winnie the Pooh, uh, the cartoon character, and a thing that a lot of the folks would do in order to show defiance against the government is compare him to Winnie the Pooh or uh, show pictures of Winnie the Pooh and refer to them as Xi Jinping or, or things like that. And he really, really doesn't like it. So it's actually banned for you to look up Winnie the Pooh on the internet in China. Um, which is funny because, you know, you think of all the things that you could possibly compare it to. That's really one of the most benign. I mean, my God, we've all heard some of the things Biden and Trump have gotten compared to. And let's be honest, none of them are as lovable as Winnie the Pooh. But evidently, when you're an authoritarian strongman dictator, you just don't have thick skin like that. So some of the other things that have happened that have curtailed the freedom of expression and the freedom of speech in the People's Republic of China is a bit of a prosecution against uh, different religions. Now, China is, not unlike Turkey previously, a highly secular state. There is to be no mention or no involvement of religion in any way, shape, or form. It's very much like the old Soviet Union in that regard. Um, In one province, the governor of the province dictated that all Christians should have any pictures of Jesus or crosses taken down in their churches, and in order for those churches to remain open, they had to put up pictures of Xi Jinping wherever there had been a cross or a picture of Jesus. Now, first off, if a church has an actual picture of Jesus who existed long before the invention of the camera, good for you. I think that's historically significant, and the government shouldn't be coming after you to take that down. But more importantly, just from an expressionist standpoint, That's insane. Can you imagine? I mean, people get ruffled in this country if you suggest that the Ten Commandments shouldn't be on the public grounds of a courthouse. And yet, in China, it's A-OK for government officials to come, yank down your pictures of a Jesus, and replace them with the leader of the Communist Party. Because, of course, that's who you should be worshiping, you fucking fools. So, you've got that. The next thing you have, um, among the other sort of grotesqueries that are happening in the People's Republic, is the um, the big R Muslims. The uh, the that uh, they're in the far um, western reaches of the country. 
So these guys, and you've heard all about it in the news to some extent or another, and that is that there is between 800,000 and a million of them that have been rounded up and sent to either work camps or, quote-unquote, re-education camps. And the public policy on this was one of just pretending it didn't exist until finally there were so many satellite images of literal concentration camps that finally the People's Republic had to actually deal with this and address it publicly by saying that because they were more likely to to commit crimes, they're just proactively rounding them up and re-educating them or incarcerating them to ensure that these crimes don't happen. which is not only basically the more or less premise of, I think, Minority Report, but also fucking horrifying to just say that this whole group of people creates support. So we're just going to arrest them in mass regardless of whether or not they've done anything. And, um, you know, that's fine. That's fine. And what's truly shocking about this is you really can't criticize China too hard on this because they've got such a stranglehold on international trade and business as it sits. I mean... We'll we'll talk about this, but there's any long laundry list of problems that you just can't deal with. Uh, Take Hong Kong. We all know about the riots of China meddling in the so-called relatively semi-independent territory of Hong Kong and how all that got brutally shut down. We all know about Tibet. We all know about Taiwan. That's been a major, major flare-up that's been happening. And at the end of the day, you're talking about – some really bad violations here. I mean, Taiwan alone in the past year has had over 100 Chinese military fighters come into their airspace and conduct maneuvers. And China has, on more than one occasion in the past couple of years, said that they have every intention of reunifying China with Taiwan. And while they want to do it diplomatically, they have unilaterally declared that they are not taking force of arms off the table as an option. So these are some serious issues, and any time anyone tries to bring this up, any time anybody tries to take a stand against China, there's the the implied threat of, oh yeah? Well, what if we just cut off the taps of trade? What if we stop shipping stuff to you? What if we just stop all business with your country? And amazingly enough, any time that happens, everyone starts to get real, real quiet regardless of what the atrocity is that's happening. The World Health Organization, the United Kingdom, hell, even the United States in some cases. When there was a, uh, I saw a a news article about this, there was a a movie that came out a number of years ago that um, some actor was in, and he referred to Taiwan as a country in the promotional material and then had to, I think it was Sino was the actor. I can't remember. I have to go look it up. But he had to apologize in Chinese for referring to Taiwan as a country, not even allowed to refer to it as a country without offending China. And they were going to boycott the studios if they didn't get an apology spoken in Mandarin to the world, apologizing for referring to Taiwan as a country. That's a frightening level of power to make a studio do a thing. Good God. I mean, I can't even get them to make, you know, that's nuts, okay? That is scary, scary powerful. And the problem is that his, his time goes on, their grip on things is tightening, right? They already have such a huge grip on international trade that this should be a major concern to us. If we go back and look at it, you've even got, you know, the nine dash uh, line dispute, which is uh, a big, hairy deal. And this is where it, it, this ties in, trust me. So the nine dash line dispute is basically based off a map that someone put out in China way back in the day uh, that 
include a dotted line declaring that China just owned pretty much all of the South China Sea. Now, the problem with this is this dotted line basically um, encompasses a whole lot of other nations' sovereign territorial waters, like, uh, you know, Vietnam and um, Indonesia and Malaysia and all that. And those countries all said, no, 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 you don't own all that. Like, that's international stuff. That's Some of that is our shipping lanes and some of our water. You don't control that. And China just goes, eh, but we do. We put it on the map. We, we drew the lines on there, so you have to. And, in fact, it's so bad now that China will boycott movies if they show a map of China that does not include the nine-dash line indicating their territorial claim. And studios have caved to this which is insane, creating a de facto, yes, we're acknowledging China that you've, you've got this because you have such a huge market, we have to bend to your will and give you this thing. Like I said, this is a terrifying amount of power. And I know it sounds silly to worry about movie studios having to cater and pander to the whims of the Chinese Communist Party, but there's a bigger picture at play here that this all ties into. So, this issue with the nine-dash line originally came up back in the 1940s, the 1950s, and the 1960s. And for the most part, at the time, no one really seemed to care all that much. At the time, it was mostly a dispute between a handful of Asian countries and China over whether or not they could claim to own this big swath of land, or water, I should say. Now, the reason this swath of water is important nowadays, well, actually, we'll come back to that. So, what was the U.S.'s point on this, where did we weigh in? I mean, we were the um, one of the two big superpowers at the time. What did we say about uh, this this dispute in the South China Seas? China says it's all theirs. Everybody's going, no, 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 you can't just do that. What was the U.S.'s uh, defiant and uh, you know resolute answer? Well, in '74, President Nixon did um, this. He signed a memorandum of understanding where he informed China that they would in no way interfere with their claim to controlling the South China Sea. Uh, The U.S. would just completely uninvolve itself and let China and its neighbors sort that out. It's a big trade lane, but whatever, who gives a fuck, it's not our problem. That was pretty much Nixon's take on it. And, uh, you know, as they famously say, only Nixon can go to China and do that, I guess. I don't know. Okay, so... Moving right along, we get to 1995, and we get Bill Clinton. And you would think, old slippery dick Bill, he's surely going to do something a bit more upright and stoic to deal with the situation. So when it came time for him to put down some policy on this, his policy was, in fact, quite simple. It was to take the Nixonian opinion of, "Eh, fuck it, let him have it. That was it. That was the plan. He did very little other than to say that the U.S. was maintaining its non-interference policy with the nine-dash line crisis, and China could sort it out for themselves as they saw fit. You get to the 2000s, and all of a sudden, the calculus changes a bit. One, we're involved in a number of wars in the Middle East, so George Bush is much too busy to worry himself with the uh, challenges of the South China Sea territorial claims. But another thing that was of interest during this time was the discovery of fairly significant oil and natural gas reserves underneath the water. And to give you an idea of exactly kind of what we're talking about in terms of scope here, the proven reserves at this point are considered to be around 11 billion barrels with an estimated 
30 billion barrels, unproven. In terms of natural gas, they've got 266 trillion cubic feet of identified natural gas, so there are significant energy resources. See, I told you I would get us there and tie it together, right? Told you, I'm professional. Done this half a dozen times now, trust me. But the point is there are significant energy reserves under there that because we've just sort of let China get away with calling this place theirs, they now have sort of a default de facto level of access to. Now, under President Obama, this changed. Obama took a bit of a harder line with them. Under Bush and Clinton and Reagan and Carter and Nixon, there was a bit of a sunshine policy where we just said, you know what, China can sort it out. We're not going to weigh in. They're big boys. It's fine. Under Obama, this changed. Obama took a firmer line and flat out said, this is not something we can allow. We consider that area to be international waterways. We do not acknowledge China's uh, ownership claims of this territory. And on top of that, um, we consider the, the South China Sea to be strategically important to the United States. And then Obama began a series of programs known as Freedom of Navigation Operations, where U.S. military ships would actually sail through the South China Seas and the Straits of Malacca to prove that not only do we say that we don't think this is yours, but we don't think it's yours so much that we're going to just drive through the neighborhood and dare you to do something about it, which pissed China off, but also they more or less didn't do anything about it. So there's that, or at least they didn't do anything directly. During the early 2010s, China came up with something of a clever idea to sort of solidify their hold on the region. They figured that one of the things in international law was that if you own land somewhere that has a sea line, you know, a coast, that you automatically get a chunk of territory that's just automatically by default recognized under international law as your territorial waters. And so China proceeded to begin building islands in the middle of the South China Sea. Um, I think it's five or seven islands. And it's a, uh, when we talk about it, I mean, we're talking about 35 plus hundred acres of islands they have built in South China Sea, which just to be clear, they built islands out of fuck all. Okay. That was their plan. They just went in the ocean and said, there's an island here. Boom. Oh, look, now there's an island. We're going to plant our flag on it. And now we magically own all of this water around it. And you can't even argue because, hey, we built an island here. On top of that, these little islands have been turned into fortresses, effectively. They've got airstrips, deepwater harbors for naval ships. They've got barracks for soldiers, anti-air missiles, anti-sea missiles, and runways for fighter aircraft. So they've made a, a series of fortified little islands out in the middle of the South China Sea to really ensure their control. Now, you may be asking yourself, why, Jordan, do I give a shit about this? Okay. It's called the South China Sea. It's relatively, it's a lot closer to them than it is to us. Why do I care? Okay, there's some big natural gas reserves out there. There's some big oil reserves. You know, it would suck if China was the only one with access to them, but eh, it's on the other side of the world. What are you going to do? Well, just keep in mind, there's another element to this that goes beyond just the massive natural resources buried in the, uh, in the sea. There's also the surface level shipping, which is a major, major issue. To give you an example of how significant this sea lane is, the Straits of Malacca and the South China Sea are responsible for 50% of the 
of all seaborne trade on the planet. 50% of all seagoing trade on planet Earth passes through this body of water. So that means pretty much anything you have that wasn't manufactured entirely in the United States, there's a coin toss chance that it came through this tradeway here. Okay? So if that gets shut down, a whole lot of shit gets bottlenecked across the globe. And if the COVID pandemic taught us anything, aside from how much some people hate masks and uh, how much it sucks being trapped in your house with literally nowhere to go, it also taught us how incredibly fragile our supply chains are. Our interconnected global world with its far-spanning supply chains has some very serious stress points on it that the pandemic broke in a lot of cases, and some of those it still hasn't managed to fix, even after all this time. So imagine when 50% of the trade is now living in the shadow of the People's Republic of China. That's a big concern. To put it in perspective, three times as much traffic goes through the South China Sea in trade internationally, oil, gas, widgets, whatever, all of it, doesn't matter. Three times as much goes through the South China Sea as does the Suez Canal. And you remember a couple of years ago when a container boat jackknifed itself in the Suez Canal for a couple of days or a week or whatever it was, and stuff all across the globe got bottled up because the Suez Canal was shut down for a few days? Straits of Malacca and the South China Seas gets three times the amount of traffic that that does. So if you think one jackknife boat monkey with the supply chain, imagine what somebody shutting down that strait would do. Five times as much trade goes through the South China Sea as it does the Panama Canal. This is a big, hairy deal. And the problem is that by not weighing in on this issue sooner, by not being more proactive about this issue, we've put ourselves in a position where China's now built literal island fortresses in the middle of the ocean where they have a very tough claim that they're persecuting on saying that a lot of this territory is theirs. And this is a very serious trade route. There's very serious natural resources that are available, and they're pretty much cutting off everybody from that. They're putting themselves in a position where they control the trade routes in a really frightening way. And I want you to take the thought of all that seaborne trade going through the South China Sea, the volume of it, and I want you to pair that with one of the key initiatives that Xi Jinping has been pushing for in the past decade, the Belt and Ring Initiative, to refocus all trade globally on China. And oh, look, now the largest seafaring uh, trade routes in the world, they've got a handed set of control over. Keep in mind, we're still doing uh, under President Trump, they increased and in some cases tripled the amount of freedom of navigation maneuvers. And China's become more and more belligerent in trying to enforce that. They'll send ships to cut off American destroyers and force them to change course suddenly. And it's a very dangerous game of chicken that's happening. They are refusing to allow countries to go in there and try and uh, drill for the oil or the natural gas and running them off with their military, citing that it's Chinese territorial waters. And so if you think about it over the next several decades, if this Belt and Ring Initiative gets going, and now that they've got a series of fortresses clamping down on the biggest seaborne trade lanes, 
you've got the recipe for a massive conflict. And it's a conflict that may not even have to fire a shot. It's literally using trade internationally to put the kibosh on any and all goods across the globe. This is a big, big deal. And it gets even worse than that, because one of the other initiatives that the Communist Party and Xi Jinping has publicly and repeatedly said that they want to see happen is that reunification with Taiwan. And the situation with Taiwan is incredibly complicated. That's a a conversation for a whole other day and episode. But one of the things I'll point out to you is that Taiwan is the number one manufacturer of semiconductors and microprocessors on the planet. Your cell phone that you're probably listening to this podcast on, which has 100,000 times more computing power than a moon rocket from the 1960s, also has semiconductors and chips that came from Taiwan. So imagine that. Ground trade across Europe, Africa, and Asia, centrally focused on and controlled by China. 50% of the sea lanes controlled by China with fortress islands set to allow them to dominate that territory and also the core source of all microprocessors and circuitry under the control of China. Over the next 50 years, less than that even, let's call it 30 years, 25 years, there is the potential to see not just a pivot to Asia, but a full-on change in the geopolitical um, realm. China is well on its way to becoming a global superpower, and the red flags, no pun intended, have been there for literally decades. And at this point, the question you have to ask yourself is what can be done? And I'm sorry to say I don't have an answer for that. Unfortunately, I just don't. There are going to have to be people a lot smarter than myself that really start taking this seriously. And it can't be just sailing ships around there and acting tough. It can't be tweeting mean things about China or railing about them on a podcast or railing about them on a news conference. We need to really sit down, stop squabbling over the partisan issues that simply don't affect our national security the way that this does and figure out what the strategy is to prevent ourselves by from being completely caught on the back foot by this any more than we already have. And I don't mean to be uh, the bearer of doom and gloom and it's all terrible, but the reality of it is, is China is in a dominant position and we've let it happen by being focused on other things. And they did it in a clever and in some ways insidious way. That has to be addressed. That's the thing that our senators, our congressmen, our presidents need to be focused on dealing with. That's where the real threat is to our prosperity and security down the road. And to be clear, I don't necessarily think a war is where this is going. What this is going to be is a trade war 2.0. At some point, China is going to have all this, this power over trade. And at some point, they won't have to fire a shot. They simply turn off the taps of commerce until they get what they want. And they've already proven with movie studios and with actors and with uh, political um, affairs offices in Europe that they will shut down business if they don't like what you're saying about them, if they don't like the narrative that you're spinning, if you're talking about something they don't want you to talk about. They've already proven they'll weaponize trade very, very effectively. And they're only going to get stronger and more capable of that. So as we move forward, it's important to remember There's another factor here. 
China is a big, powerful nation, and it's also not an unstoppable juggernaut. There's already some cracks in the foundation. You've got internal descent in Hong Kong. You've got an economy that is, for the first time in decades, slowing down dramatically. For the first time, they're seeing single-digit growth and low single-digit uh, percentage growth at that. They're facing a sovereign debt crisis. They're facing a number of issues which are starting to bubble up under the surface. To top that all off, they've also got issues that they're still trying to wrangle with COVID. They've got issues with tensions with many of their neighbors. Um, increasing tensions here with the United States. I mean, there, you got the balloon fiasco, which I haven't even touched on, but we've all been following the news on that debacle. But the point is, they're a nation that has a number of foundational issues that are starting to show signs. Um, not to mention, they have a demographic issue that's being very seriously worrisome to them. There's, For the first time, they're seeing a population decrease rather than increase. They have a disproportionate number of males to females because of the consequences of the one-child-only policies that China's had for so, so long. So China can see the writing on the wall that there are some economic tough times on the horizon, that it's not always going to be sunshine and growth, which is true of any nation. It's true of us. It's true of Europe. It's going to be true of China. All these things are cyclical. The nature of China's controlled economy has ensured that some of these repercussions, though, are going to be much more severe, just like some of that growth was much more pronounced. It's the nature of what they did with this command economy where they used a lever that, that effectively amplified the magnitude of both the growth and the negative consequences when they come. So the concern here is kind of like what we talked about a few episodes ago. If they start seeing a downplay in the economy, if they start seeing tension at home, if problems start to brew up internally, what is it that authoritarian regimes like to do so much when they feel like the pool of the patriotic fervor is starting to slip and decline, and when they feel like the problems at home are mounting a little too much and they need a distraction? What's something that these regimes love to do. We talked about in episode one, a short victorious war, and the rhetoric about taking over Taiwan has already started. They've already started with the news blasting, with the rhetoric, with flying the military flights over, doing the drills. Do I know that they're going to invade Taiwan? I don't. Now, the commander of the Air Force Materiel Command, or excuse me, the Air Force Air Mobility Command, um, does certainly believe that there's going to be a war. He put out a white paper um, just a few weeks ago where he said within the next five years he was convinced there was going to be a shooting war between the United States and China. And I do think that's a little alarmist, but I think it's good that somebody is seriously concerned about this possibility. If China does invade Taiwan, there's very real economic concerns that go into that. There's very real problems that's going to generate for literally everybody that uses a piece of technology. And the question is, how far are we as a nation prepared to go to involve ourselves in that conflict? And perhaps the more important question even than that is, what can we do to stave off that possibility between now and then? Again, I don't have the answers. I'm a vice president of sales and marketing in my day job. And for a part-time gig, I get on here and yak about oil and gas and energy geopolitics. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I don't have an answer. But to the people that we've elected to put in offices, 
Stop squabbling over the nonsense. Stop getting into slap fights over incremental changes in the budget and whatever the socio-religious demagogy ideal that it is that you're fighting over. And for just a little bit, put that on hold and actually worry about the growing superpower to the East. Think about that for a bit, because that's the thing that we've kept our eye off of for way too long that's going to be the biggest threat, not just to the country, not just to the industry, but to the economy as a whole. That's what we need to be focused on and dealing with. There you go. That's what I got. So, on that bombshell, I am going to go ahead and end. We've run out the clock for the evening. So, as always, thank you for joining me. This is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that if I were any animated character, I would not be Winnie the Pooh. I would obviously be Jafar from Aladdin. Have a good night. We'll see you guys next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.